In 2001, uh, Woody Allen, the American film director and actor, gave a revealing interview with Time magazine. When asked about his love life, particularly his highly publicized affair with a woman 35 years his younger, Woody Allen said this, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to those things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. In a single sentence, Woody Allen puts his finger on the biggest problem that plagues humanity. The heart wants what it wants. We're driven by the desires of our hearts, and our hearts are fallen. They're desperately sick. They lead us astray. Our hearts deceive us. They crave what ultimately harms us. The heart of our problem is our heart. Woody Allen illustrates the truth that Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, writes of some 2,600 years prior. Jeremiah 17, verse 19, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And hear his exasperation. The greatest prophet of all time, Jesus Christ, would continue this message about the human heart in the four Gospels. Jesus routinely targets the human heart. As we continue in our sermon series, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we see Jesus speaking to the issues of our hearts. And this morning, we see that he deals with the issue of lust that originates in our hearts, that drives our behavior, our, our sexual sin. And I know, friends, this is, this is tough sledding. It's not lost on me. It's hard to preach these messages. It's hard to, to hear them. I know that. Uh, but they're in our master's sermon. And it delights him to follow his footsteps and to teach what he teaches. And so I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 and the Bibles we've provided on your, your chairs, you can find that on page 810. Page 810. If you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one. So in the entryway where you walked in, there's some bookcases. The one closest to the restrooms, there are some black hardback Bibles that you're welcome to take as a gift. If you need one, please take it. If you have a friend who needs one, please give them a Bible as well. So we're continuing our ser sermon series, multiple month series in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the, the title of this series is The Ways of the King. And what we're seeking to do here is to see how Jesus unpacks the ethic of his kingdom. He shows us in the Sermon on the Mount what it means to be a kingdom citizen. What are the qualities and the characteristics of his kingdom? And so that's what we're exploring over these next few months, the ways of the king through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this morning, I'm going to read verses 27 through 30 in the sermon. 27 through 30. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now the central idea of this sermon is that sexual sin stems from the heart. Its consequences are grave and Christians must battle it by grace. Sexual sin stems from the heart. Its consequences are grave and we must battle it by God's grace. Jesus makes this pivotal statement earlier on in the the Sermon on the Mount. You just rewind a little bit to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And by the law and the prophets, he's speaking to all of the Old Testament, representative of all the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures, but to fulfill them. This is a massive statement that serves as the key to unlocking and understanding the entirety of our Bibles. What Jesus means is that he came to complete and to clarify God's truest intentions and application behind his word. And so what follows in the Sermon on the Mount are these clarifications that Jesus makes in Matthew 5, 21 through verse 48. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 48, Jesus has these multiple statements. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you six times over. In those 27 verses, he is clarifying God's truest intent behind his words. So last week, we unpacked the first clarification that Jesus makes on the pervasive issue of anger. This week, we transition to the next big item, and that is lust, the root of sexual sin. Again, this is a, this is a difficult topic, but Jesus addresses it speaking truth in love. Conviction and compassion. That's how we have to have hard conversations. Truth and love. Conviction and compassion. So three parts to this sermon. The heart of sexual sin, the consequences of sexual sin, and the battle for sexual purity. That's an outline that I'm going to follow. The heart of sexual sin, the consequence of sexual sin, and the battle for sexual purity. Again, and the central idea here is Sexual sin stems from the heart. Its consequences are grave, and we must battle it by grace. So first, the heart of sexual sin. Jesus says in verses 27 and 28, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In this statement, Jesus combats the circulating theology of the day among the religious experts of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes, who had reduced the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, to a mere physical act. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had a surface-level, facade-based conception of obedience to God's word. Hey, as long as I I get up as as close to the line as possible, as long as I don't do the physical act, I'm good. Jesus goes deeper. He speaks to the heart behind the physical act, the heart that drives the behavior. That's what Jesus is after, the heart. Now, he doesn't add to the seventh commandment here. Rather, he shows us its truest and its fullest application. When the Bible refers to the heart, it's referring to the moral control center of human beings. That's 
the heart. I'm not simply speaking of biology and the, 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 the beating heart inside you. No, he, he's, he's speaking to the moral control center, the spiritual operating system within all of us, that seat, that chair of moral operations that drives our actions. That is the heart, and that's what Jesus targets. You see, even in the Old Testament, God required purity of heart. He spoke to purity of heart. Even in the Ten Commandments, what's the Tenth Commandment? You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. What does he do? He's interconnecting, he's integrating all the Ten Commandments. They all go together, and they ultimately, the Tenth Commandment is speaking directly to our heart. You not, ought not to covet, desire, lust after your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's possession, so forth. God spoke of the heart. Jesus is just helping us to see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Because we have a fine way of just operating on, on, the, on the surface. Jesus says, no, you got to go deeper. you got to go deeper. God addresses purity of the heart throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you a few examples that you might jot down. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. This is when David is anointed king of Israel. And Jesse prays his first seven sons, and Samuel's like, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one, no, no, no. You look on outer appearances, but I'm interested in the heart, and David is a man after my own heart. He looks at the heart. Psalm 19, verse 4, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The psalmist is speaking to the heart. Know my heart. Psalm 24, verse 4. I read this this morning. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He or she who has clean hands and a pure heart. The Old Testament is dealing with deep areas of our lives, the, the heart. And Jesus just continues this throughout the Gospels. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 and 23. Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart of human beings, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. What an exhaustive list of, of wrongdoing. Is, it all comes from the heart. It's not about the surface. It's about the heart. All these things come from within that defile a person. God has the utmost focus and concern for our hearts. And so we must also look within, be honest about our hearts. Now, a key question that we have to ask and answer is, what is lust? That's what Jesus says here. What is lust? Lust is not simply a look, a glance. Rather, it's a focus. It's our unbridled imagination our envisioning, our fantasizing, our mulling over in our minds what in a physical encounter with somebody else would look like. Stewing it over in our minds, a relationship with someone that you don't have. And the key here is, is sexual immorality. Imagining sexual encounters outside the covenant of marriage between one woman and one man. That's how God defines sexual purity. The gift of sex in the holy confines of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. 
That's the sexual ethic of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The protected, beautiful confines of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's what Jesus has in mind here. Now, sexual immorality is a big umbrella word that covers everything outside of God's intentions in that, which includes adultery, as we see here, premarital sex, that's outside the covenant of, of marriage, masturbation, prostitution, homosexuality. These are all outside of God's design for physical intimacy between one man and one woman bonded together by the covenant as long as they both shall live. That's what we're speaking here. So lust is the envisioning of something outside of that protected, beautiful confines of the covenant of marriage. It's not just a focus on the physical act here. We've got to go deeper. Jesus is helping us to consider the creative power of our minds. Let me ask you, how has your mind run wild this past week? What have you fantasized about? What have you mulled over in your mind? Our hearts are greatly creative and imaginative in their sinful capabilities. That's what Jesus is targeting. A husband envisioning an encounter, a relationship with a woman who is not his wife at work, in the neighborhood, at church, a wife envisioning an encounter, a relationship with a man who is not her husband. And I know there's some differences here. I'm going to speak of some generalities. Guys are certainly visually oriented. So lusting and pornography and looking at our phones and seeing women, that, that is a common temptation. Women can also be visually stimulated, but often it's more relational. Let me ask you this, ladies. How have you envisioned being in a marital relationship with a better man, someone who will lead you better, someone perhaps who's a better Christian. That's what he's talking about, envisioning what it would be like for, for, for someone just a little bit, little bit better. That, that's, that is a consuming desire. That, that, is, that is a kind of lust here. And I know it plays out differently for, for men and for women, but this, this is what he's, he's, so how has our mind, how, our imagination run wild with us over a desire a craving that we have. A man envisioning an encounter with another man. A woman envisioning an encounter with another woman. A teenager envisioning sex outside the covenant of marriage. All, all of these things are just a, a sampling of how lust can play out in our hearts. Those of us, teenagers, perhaps people who are engaged in a dating relationship, we often have this thought in our mind. As long as I'm not having sexual intercourse with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend, I'm okay. I'm being obedient. I can do all the other things. I can go right up to the line. As long as I don't just cross into sexual intercourse, I'm okay. How would Jesus respond to that? Well, that's what the Pharisees were saying. As long as I don't do the physical act of adultery, I'm okay. No, Jesus is concerned about our hearts. Well, what's the big deal here? Why the restrictions in Jesus' sexual ethic? I mean, wasn't Jesus all about love? 
Why, why such restrictions? Well, yes, Jesus is the author of love. Jesus loves love, but in the right context, with the right restrictions. True love cannot be shared without the right restrictions. Our culture says, you ought to be able to love whoever you want, whenever you want, it doesn't matter. It's, 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 it's a narrative of love without restrictions. Friends, that is not love. I've shared this illustration before. What, what I cherish in my marriage relationship with Laura is that we've made this covenant before God, before our loved ones, before one another, that we promise, as long as we both shall live, to love and serve and care for one another. We made nobody else, just she and I did that 20 years ago. That is a powerful bond, and I have the utmost trust in her. I don't worry about her chasing after some, somebody else who might have hair or who might be a better, like, I don't worry about, there's a security, there's a security in that. We're bonded together. It's love with right restrictions, and I know that we're in common thinking about those restrictions. We're in agreement. But if love is just, hey, you can do, there's no restrictions, you can do whatever you want. Imagine being in a relationship with someone like that, and the neurotic anxiety and insecurity that you have as soon as someone better, more attractive, better looking, whatever comes your way, you live in this neurosis because you lack a stability that comes with the right restrictions. And that's where our culture is. Fear. Someone better's going to come by and allure this person that I'm in a relationship with. True love can only be experienced with the right restrictions. God gives us these restrictions, not to be an angry old curmudgeon, but because he loves us and he wants us to flourish. That's why he gives us restrictions around love and marriage. He knows what he's doing. He's the designer of it all, and we are in our wisest position when we follow his lead and his design. The heart of sexual sin. It's a matter of the heart. Secondly, the consequence of sexual sin. Jesus speaks some weighty words here in verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, one of your body parts, that is, than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. These are intense words, aren't they? Let's just be clear. These are hard words. Now, Jesus isn't literally calling us to lop off limbs to gouge out eyes to avoid sin. He's using a rhetorical literary device called hyperbole, which is simply intentional overstatement for the sake of emphasis. He's speaking in some hard, vivid terms so that we get his point. He's emphasizing this point. Sin is serious, and we need to take drastic measures to avoid it. That's what he's saying. Sin is serious. It has grave consequences, and therefore we need to take drastic measures to fight it, to do battle against it. He's using the strongest language to convey the gravity of the situation, because unrestrained sin in our lives will lead to our eternal demise. 
The gravity of sin necessitates drastic restraints. That's why the lopping off limb language. It's far better to deal with the temporary difficulty of a missing limb in this life than to deal with the eternal agony of hell. That's what he's saying. That's his line of argumentation. This is a call to purge from your life that which causes you to sin. Hell here is, is, is the valley of Hinnom. The valley of Hinnom, which was a place just south of Jerusalem, which served as the city dump. And in those days, you burned your trash. And because it was the city dump, there was a lot of trash. It was always burning, always burning. That's the idea here, a place of perpetual burning. That's the imagery that Jesus uses for hell. And his first century audience would have gotten it right like that because they knew Jerusalem and they knew the city dump and they knew the smells and they knew the smoke. It's a place of perpetual burning. And Jesus takes that image and he speaks of hell over and over and over again where the fire is not quenched. Jesus spoke a lot of hell. He spoke to it a lot in his sermons and his teachings. It's a place of perpetual burning. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping as a result of the conscious torment of that place. And the angry, grinding, gnashing of teeth that people have there because they're still in rebellion against God. They're still in their unrepentance. Friends, there are no repentant people in hell. The weeping and gnashing of teeth are people there who are still shaking their fist angrily at God in unrepentance. There are no repentant people in hell. They gnash their teeth, weep in agony. It is an awful picture. And we must talk about it. Jesus spoke and preached on hell frequently. Have Christians abused the doctrine of hell in Christian history? I believe so. Speaking about it in a callous, graceless manner, turn or burn teaching and evangelism where we're just interested in scaring somebody, literally scaring the hell out of somebody. Jesus spoke about hell, but with compassion. We need to be truthful. It's the most loving thing that we can do in our sharing of the gospel to speak about the reality of unrepentant sin and the pathway that it leads to. Separation from God in a real place of conscious torment called hell. Would you say your tendency is to talk too much of hell or to talk too little of hell? I think... In our day and age, I, th I think in our culture as well, we talk too little of it. We fall into the latter category. Now, brothers and sisters, it's a hard topic. I know it. I struggle with it. But we have to address it. It's the most loving thing we can do to hold out what the consequence is for a life of unrepentant, unbridled, unrestrained sin. We must do so with deep compassion, speaking the truth in love because we want no one to go there. Truth and love. Friend, I, I don't know where you are today with Christianity, with the message of Jesus. I just want you to know that he came to deliver you from the consequence of hell. He bore hell for you 
momentarily on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. He loves you. He laid down his life on a cross to deliver you and to deliver me from the right consequence of our sin. He loves you that much. And if you trust in him, you're delivered from your sin and from the end game of our sin, which is hell. You're delivered if you would look on Christ and trust in him. Aren't Christians going to struggle with sin in this life, though? Should we be constantly worried about committing sin and being cast into hell? Friends, here's the issue. It's unrepentant sin. It's unrestrained sin. Unbridled sin. Unsurrendered lives. The routine practicing of sin. The Apostle John says in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, no one who has been born of God makes a practice of sinning makes a practice of sinning, what that means is giving sin a regular workout. You're exercising it. You're giving it a regular workout. You're feeding it. It's growing and developing. That sin is unrestrained. It's unrepentant. That's what Jesus is talking about. So would you look at your heart and you say, I've slipped today. You need not fear. If you're trusting in Christ, you need not fear that you're being cast into hell for this, this sin. But what you have to do is say, hmm, as I look at the trajectory of my life, do I see glimpses of repentance and of turning? Am I grieved over my sin? Or am I just giving it a regular workout, routinely practicing it, unaffected, unsurrendered? That's the concern point. Because no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God goes to the sin gym and just keeps working it and working it and working it. That's what he's saying. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. If you're truly born again, you will sin, but your conscience will be pricked, you'll be broken over it, and by God's grace, you're going to repent of it. That's what he's talking about. If you're here today, and you are honest with your life, you're just given over to to sin, you need to ask the question, do I truly know Jesus? Am I trusting in Jesus, his shed blood for my sin? Have I surrendered myself to the cross of Christ, the only place where our sins can be forgiven? Those are good questions to ask. Christians will battle sin until we see Jesus face to face, but that's just it. We're called to battle it, battle it, battle it, and that's where Jesus takes us next. Our final stop in the sermon, the heart of sexual sin, the consequence of sexual sin, thirdly and finally, the battle for sexual purity the battle for sexual purity. Let's revisit what Jesus says in 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Again, he's speaking in hyperbole, intentional overstatement for the sake of emphasis. He wants us to get his point and that sin is serious and we need to take drastic measures to fight it to avoid it. The removal of these two body parts that Jesus urges in these metaphors is purposeful. It's strategic. The eyes and the hands, each a different playground for sin. The eyes, what we look at, what we take in through those two portals in our head. What we watch, what we see, what we return to on our screens. And the hands, what you touch, what you do, how you act on the passions of your heart. 
the eyes and the hand, two different playgrounds for sin. Can I ask you, how are your eyes causing you to sin? What do you routinely look at that is causing your mind and your heart to decay? If you struggle with lust and, and pornography, today is the day to just turn to Christ, trust in him, receive his grace, and move forward. It's going to be a bumpy road. Just keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. How, how are you habitually objectifying women and men online, on television, walking around in daily life? What might it look like for you to gouge out your eye, to take some serious measures to avoid sin? Disconnecting your internet at times when nobody else is around in your house. Going to the library to check your email. Getting an old school, maybe a flip phone. They still make some of those. Well, won't that be inconvenient? You bet it will. You bet it will. Very inconvenient. But much less inconvenient than letting sin go unbridled and to find yourself in hell one day. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, won't it be hard? Yes. Just like going through life with one eye or one hand. Yes. I want to just, a brief excursus here on pornography. It's rampant in our culture. A multi, multi-billion dollar business that impacts men and women. I, I, just, want, I just want to encourage you as, you, as you think about that, just, just, just see behind the scenes a little bit. Those actors online in those videos, those are precious people created in the image of God with inherent dignity and value who have found their selves through probably monetary gain in a business that they may see on the surface is beneficial to them but is rotting their souls. And when you look, you're objectifying precious people created in the image of God. You're, you're treating them as an object for your gratification. It's dehumanizing to the people that you watch, and it's crushing to you as well. Just see sin for what it is. There's no, there's no good in it. There's no good. It's objectifying precious people created in the image of God. Know what you're, you're doing. And I'm just here to tell you, there is a savior who can deliver you from addiction to pornography and to masturbation and to any other manner of, of sexual sin. There is a savior who loves you, who hung on a cross for you, bearing all of your sin and your judgment. Just turn to him. Turn to him. Trust in him. He is sufficiently strong to deliver you and to sustain you. Look to him. In the local church, brothers and sisters in Christ are called to have a familial, protective bond. And I just want to speak to relationships among men and women here in this church or in any other church that you go to. We have, we have something powerful. We're called brothers and sisters in Christ. And how I see my sister Heidi, I love my sister. I have two sisters, Heidi and Kristen. I'm an older brother. I'm called to protect them not to abuse that relationship, to look after them. That's the kind of familial bond that we need to have for one another. So as you think about interactions, 
man, are you, are you looking out for the women in this church? Or are you lusting after them? Care for them. Pray for them. Minister to them. Women, are you ministering to, to the men in your lives? You just be, you know, uh, application, be thoughtful about how you dress. There's a reason the Bible speaks about modesty. It's healthy for local churches. And I understand that some Christian traditions have taken that way overboard. I'm just saying, be thoughtful. Be thoughtful about, about how, you, how, how you dress. It's a, good, it's a good thing. And I also want to caution against this culture sometimes in churches where men and women can't meet together. I understand the roots of that. But I think many women in local churches have been kind of felt that there's some kind of temptress because their pastor or a male member in the church won't meet with them. Jesus and Paul didn't do that kind of thing. Jesus ministered to women. Paul ministered to women. Now, we need to be wise when we meet and where we meet. But brothers, you need to be able to have a conversation with a sister in Christ over a cup of coffee in a public place or in the, in the lobby of your church and not, and not make her feel like, oh, I can't do that, I'm not going to do that. Just, just be thoughtful about how, how you interact. I think because these, these, this pendulum can swing too far the other direction. We need to guard each other. But men are called to, to minister to women. Women are called to minister to men within the, the bonds of the, the familial bonds in the local church. Be thoughtful, be wise, minister to each other, pray for each other. Guard the heart of one another. Sexual sin stems from the heart. Its consequences are grave. Christians must battle it by grace. How do we ultimately battle the lusts of the heart? How do we battle the allure of the eyes? The way that we ultimately battle that is by setting our gaze on something far more beautiful. The author of Hebrews writes this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all the saints of old in a big auditorium cheering you on to live well in this life as a Christian. That's the imagery. A whole stadium full of people cheering us on to keep running well, keep running well, keep running well. Follow Jesus. Let us then lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the author of Hebrews saying for us to look at and to long for and to set our eyes on? Fix your eyes on Jesus the most beautiful one, the most beautiful face to look at. Look to Jesus. He's far more beautiful than anything else that will tempt you and allure your focus in this world. Fix your eyes on him. He's the one who endured the cross for you. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who saves you. He's the one who sustains you on the path of purity. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. We're thankful for your word, for your grace, for your truth. Help us to hold it tightly. 
Lord, I, I come to you as, as a, a fellow struggler of sin with lust in my own heart. I confess that to you. Ask for your strength and grace to deliver me. Help me to set my eyes on your beauty. Lord, brothers and sisters in this room battling sexual sin and lust, there's only one who can help us, and it is you. God, I pray for some who are bothered by this teaching, your sexual ethic. God, I pray that you would help those friends continue to explore the truths of the Bible, not to just write it off because it doesn't make sense or because it's offensive. Help us to walk alongside these friends, sifting through the truths of Scripture. And Lord, would you enlighten eyes and, and minds with your truth that we could truly know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.